0: Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. This is the short episode on deontology and the moral philosophy of Immanuel Kant. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. I'm also director of the British Philosophical Association. Thanks for listening. Okay, so out there in Podland, there's another Philosophy Gets Schooled episode called Deontology and Kant in Depth, where I talk with a couple of teachers, Michael Leiswing and Ben Jones, about everything to do with deontology and in particular, the moral philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Um, There's an awful lot going on with Emmanuel Kant we go through all the main parts in detail. But that means that we have got quite a long episode, even though we break it up with um, different segments with musical gaps. Um, so that sort of episode is good if you are reviewing all the teaching that's going on at the time when you're with your teachers and your lessons. It might also be useful when you're trying to do lots of in-depth revision building up to exams. But I'm aware that you might also just want a short and snappy episode about deontology and Kant. So here it is. I'm going to see if I can do everything to do with Immanuel Kant in about 10 minutes. Deep breath. OK, before we get on to Kant, though, let's start and think about normative ethics. So in other Philosophy Get scored episodes, I talk about normative ethics, but it won't hurt to go through it all again. So in normative ethics is really that area of moral philosophy where we're thinking about overall stances or systems of justification, where we're thinking about um, how we should live our lives and in particular, what sort of actions we should do looked at from a from a moral point of view, which sort of actions are morally obligatory, which are morally permissible and which actions are morally forbidden. So there's different... Um, things you can focus on when you're thinking about our lives and think about how we act you could focus on general character traits and think about our virtues and vices this takes us into think about virtue ethics and and Aristotle you could think not so much about the actions themselves but think about their consequences and their effects are we trying to produce good consequences and avoid bad effects are we trying to make people happy and make ourselves happy This obviously gets us into utilitarianism and the moral philosophy of Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. But as well as thinking about general character traits and thinking about the consequences, we might also be thinking about the action types themselves. And in life, we act in all sorts of ways. Even within our moral lives, we perform all sorts of actions. We might help people and save them. We might promise to people. Uh, We might have to decide whether we are honest with people or tell lies. Uh, We hear about people stealing and even killing people. If you're a deontologist, what you're doing is you're focusing on these sorts of action types. Then you're building principles around them, such as do not steal help other people when you can and if you're a deontologist particularly if you're a strict deontologist you're going to be saying that the consequences don't matter perhaps your general character traits don't matter what really matters when you're thinking about what we should be uh, doing morally are the action types themselves the principles that are based on them but of course deontologists will, will owe us then some explanation why is it that we choose some actions and not others? Why are some principles good principles and not other principles? After all, just as we might say there's a moral principle to do not steal, there might be seemingly an equally valid moral principle to have, which was steal whenever you feel like it. Which ones do we choose? And Indeed, not just those two Um, contrasting obviously moral principles we might have this sort of principle uh, do not steal unless someone's wearing a blue jumper on a Wednesday in which case it's okay to steal from them how do we sort out those principles as well because that's obviously a silly principle but we need to understand why it's silly okay so then this gets us into the moral philosophy of Immanuel Kant, as I say in the in-depth interview with uh, Michael and Ben, we discuss all of these elements in a lot more detail. I'm going to do now, but let me just uh, list uh, a number of them and go through them. So, if you're going to be thinking about Kant, you need to understand all these different moving parts: um, a goodwill and maxims, categorical imperatives and hypothetical imperatives. The categorical imperative with a capital C and a capital line. It's different formulations. You've got to think about contradiction in conception and contradiction in willing tests and understand how they relate to perfect and imperfect duties. And you've got to understand or appreciate uh, lots of different problems that arise from Kant's moral philosophy. Before we get on to that list of different moving parts, I think it's really important to understand two general ideas with Kant's moral philosophy. So this might all seem very abstract and very fundamental, and that's because it is, (laughs) but Kant is really concerned with um, not just things that are abstract, but he's trying to do all of this because he's really concerned with a practical area of our lives. Um, And in fact, what's important to realize is we might be focusing on or Kent might be focusing on um, individual people and the maxims or the principles that they have um, and how they act. But he's really concerned to situate us as individuals in a shared moral community. Okay, it only makes sense for us being moral beings if we understand that we're part of a community of other moral beings. That really comes out strongly in some parts of his moral philosophy, particularly one of the formulations of the categorical imperative. And the second thing to understand is this, when Kant's uh, uh, writing his moral philosophy, particularly in the the groundwork, certainly the stuff that you um, learn at A-level, Kant isn't really trying to produce an argument that's aiming to convince um, someone who's outside the moral realm, someone who's an egoist or an amoralist or an immoralist. Okay, He's speaking to uh, people like us, or I hope people like us. People already think that there is uh, a moral realm and it makes sense to be moral, makes sense to um, act well towards other people. Um, what he's trying to do is unpack what he thinks is our shared conception of our moral lives. That's really important to understand that um, when you're going through all of Kant's moral philosophy in the various moving parts, because he thinks he's speaking to people who are just like him and who share um, this appreciation of the moral life. Okay, so let's start um, with um, the idea of the goodwill. And from that, we'll then move on to all the other different moving parts. So in the in-depth discussion I have with Michael and Ben, we think about the difference between willing and wanting. Briefly, willing is those kind of fundamental motivations that we have. So we might want all sorts of things and sometimes we act on them. Uh, and sometimes we don't act on them, and sometimes we, even when we're acting um, and wanting things and getting them, perhaps they're not really fundamental um, things that we that we care about. Whereas the will are things that we're really going to be motivating us, and at the heart they're the they're the basic things that motivate us. I think there's something very important as well to realise with Kant all the way through. He's wanting us as moral agents, reading his works, to be honest with ourselves, to think what's really going on when I'm acting. What am I really willing? here. And Kant says quite famously, the only thing that's good without qualification is a good will. So he thinks that there are all sorts of things that that can be good, um, but they're often good with qualification. So happiness, for example, might be often good, but uh, sometimes happiness can be undeserved. Sometimes people can get happy, but we don't think it's a good thing that they are happy. Um, Perhaps someone's evil or bad, and they got away with it. And therefore, they're happy. So happiness can be qualified. It's not always a good thing. Whereas for, and there are lots of other examples as well. Whereas for Kant, the idea of a goodwill is the only thing that's that's um, good without qualification. It's, it's something that's aiming all the time at uh, uh, good and right outcomes. Okay, so now we need to spend a little bit of time on, on how we might act and what those what things we're trying to aim for. So the word maxim often comes in here and often that can be a little bit um, bewildering for, for some students. So maxim is just a fancy term here for what's often referred to as principle or subjective principle. They're those fundamental principles and ideas that I'm really acting on when I act. Um, but what sort of things should I be acting towards? Well, Kant thinks we should be acting um, uh, out of duty. We should be doing those things that are right. And he illustrates this with uh, example of a shopkeeper. So you can imagine two, sh- two shopkeepers. Um, there's one shopkeeper who is keeping their shop and they've got all their prices marked correctly. All of the, the goods they sell are um, it's got all, all true things on the label, such as the weights, the best before dates, all sorts of things like that. And we say to this uh, shopkeeper, hey, it's, it's good that you're, um, you're, you're doing this. And this is how you're running your shop. You seem as if you're treating your customers with respect. And the shopkeeper says, yeah, yeah, of course, you, you've got to, haven't you? Because if I, if I try to diddle them, if I try to defraud them, then I, you know, I might lose business and then I might go out of business. That would be terrible. And there's a second shopkeeper, he does all the same things as this first shopkeeper we've just been talking about. But when we ask him, you know, it's it's good you seem to be respecting our, your customers. And he says, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely right to respect your customers. You've got to be true to them. You've got to be honest, haven't you? And Kent draws a distinction between those two types of shopkeeper. The one shopkeeper is acting in accordance with duty, right? He's doing what morality demands, but he's doing it really to stay in business, at least as I've construed that example. Whereas the second shopkeeper is really acting because he's respecting customers, because he's trying to give them true information about best before dates, about the prices and weights of the goods he's selling, and so on. And of course, that second shopkeeper is the shopkeeper that that Kant really, really admires. The first shopkeeper is acting in accordance with duty, whereas the second shopkeeper is acting out of duty, And that's what we should be doing uh, if we have a good will, We're always acting out of duty. In a moment, though, we've got to think about, yeah, but what principles should we be acting on? Don't worry, we'll get there. Okay, next bit. Categorical imperatives and hypothetical imperatives, which are two um, terms or phrases that crop up and, again, can be a little bit confusing. Imperative here is just a fancy word for command. Okay, so there might be all sorts of commands or demands that are made on us, such as do your homework, do the dishes, uh, mow the lawn, whatever it might be. Um, and uh, these are demands, commands on us, and often they're voiced in a categorical way, right? You don't have a choice. But sometimes there can be commands or demands on us which uh, have an if clause, either implicitly or explicitly. So if you want me to drive you somewhere, you've got to mow the lawn. If you want your pocket money, you've got to do the dishes. And these are often referred to as hypothetical imperatives. So if you want to go somewhere out and go somewhere out in the evening, or if you want your pocket money, or if you want some further goal or end, then you need to do this thing. This means mowing the lawn, doing the dishes, doing homework, whatever it might be. These are hypothetical imperatives. And in a way, it's up to you to choose. So if you want to go out tonight, you better mow the lawn. But in the end, if you don't really care too much about going out tonight, well, don't mow the lawn. It's a hypothetical imperative. Unlike categorical imperatives, there's no if clause. It's not based on something else you might want. You've just got to do the dishes. You've just got to do your homework. You've just got to mow the lawn. And Kant thinks that we think that moral imperatives and moral principles are categorical imperatives, right? There's no choices here, or rather there is a choice. You can either choose to be moral or choose not to be moral. But he, remember, he's speaking to people who he thinks are choosing to be moral. So he thinks our conception of the moral realm is a conception of principles, rules, ideas, which are categorical. Okay, that's what, that's what shapes them. There's obligations here, and they're not, um, they're not a matter of choice if you want to be a moral person. Okay, that brings us on to the categorical uh, imperative, and there are different formulations of it. Um, let's think about the first one that uh, you often study A-level, called the Formula of Universal Law. Act only on that maxim through which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. So we've already thought about maxims, haven't we? Those those principles, those subjective principles, the ones that you're really uh, basically acting upon. And you can say with this force formulation, act on that maxim through which you can at the same time will that everyone else should be acting on exactly the same maxim. And the big idea here is don't make an exception for yourself. In morality, we think that if something applies to me, it applies to everyone, right? I can't make exceptions or unjustifiable exceptions for myself. And that's really a really important part of Kant's moral philosophy. And think about that first formula of universal law brings in the contradiction in conception and contradiction winning tests, which we talk a lot about in the in-depth discussion, uh, me, Michael and Ben. I'll just think about it quite quickly here. So a classic example is to think about stealing or theft and thinking about that principle or maxim, do not steal. And Kant's saying, uh, imagine you've got a different sort of uh, maxim or, or principle. Don't steal unless you fancy it or steal whenever you want to. And then Kant's saying, steal whenever you want to. Imagine that being a universal law. Imagine if everyone did that. And he's asking you to think, what would happen if everyone did that? Well, here's what would happen. I'd go around and I'd take phones, uh, if I like the look of them, or pencils, or cars, or whatever it would be. And pretty quickly, uh, everyone else would be doing it. Because remember, I've universalized that maxim. So everyone is taking pencils and phones and cars. And everyone's doing it all the time. People are just taking what they want to. And the thought there is, I can't be stealing a car or a phone or a pencil in such a world. The whole convention of private property is broken down. The idea that this car or this phone is mine or yours doesn't make any sense because people are just taking things whenever they want to. So the idea of steal whenever you want to, if universalized, doesn't make sense. Because it's impossible to steal things if nothing belongs to anyone. The whole convention of private property, remember, has broken down. And that's what Kant's getting at when he's thinking about the contradiction in conception. We're not talking about a logical contradiction with premises um, not meshing with a conclusion. Rather, we're thinking about a practical contradiction. We couldn't imagine such a world where I could steal whenever I wanted to. Uh, where that maxim was universalized, and the convention of property ownership still remained, it would be a practical contradiction. And there are other examples as well, such as promise-making. And we talk through a number of examples in the in-depth discussion. What about the contradiction in willing test? So again, this is uh, a contradiction or indeed a clash, a tension, but it's not quite the same as contradiction in conception. So. Kant uh, is imagining uh, principles or maxims such as help others. And he's saying, imagine you decided to go against that and saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to help other people. Okay. He's saying, imagine if you were to universalize that maxim. What would that world be like? Well, Kant says you could imagine a world be, what, like that. We'd kind of be moral hermits, right? No one would help anyone else at all, which means... I wouldn't be helping other people, but they wouldn't be helping me. You could imagine that world. It's not a contradiction in conception, but we're an interconnected moral community. Remember, very important for Kant. And so at some point in order for me to further my goals, for me to live my life, I'm going to need other people. After all, here I am, I'm recording a podcast. Now I haven't made the laptop. I haven't made the microphone. Other people have made it for me. When I go out to the shops, I need people to be running shops. I need there to be a supply chain that brings goods to the shops. I need there to be um, the whole social convention of money so I can buy things and so on and so forth. And pretty soon, if I were to, uh, if I weren't to starve, (laughs) if I were able to do things, I need other people. And I need to help them and they need to help me. So you simply couldn't universalise the maxim, I'm not going to help other people. Because whilst that world is not practically contradictory, I would be thwarting myself as a rational agent, I'd be thwarting my will. I couldn't be the sort of moral agent that I need to be. So that's really what's going on in contradiction and conception and contradiction winning tests but as I say we talk a lot more about that in the in-depth discussion that does link though to two important uh, ideas in Kant which I'll mention briefly perfect and imperfect duties so broadly contradiction conception results in perfect duties contradiction winning results in imperfect duties students often get a little bit confused with these two terms perfect here does not mean the very best perfect means kind of specified or as specific as it needs to be, or highly specified, or something like that. So often, with contradiction conception tests, you're getting um, principles that are phrased such as "do not steal," which was our example. Uh, "Do not break promises." One of Kant's examples: "Do not lie," and so on and so forth. Okay, they're telling you these these are the things that are forbidden. Okay, and you can perfectly fulfill that duty just by refraining from stealing and lying and killing and all the other uh, examples that Kant talks about and that i talked about in relation to deontology okay you can perfectly do them they're highly specified duties just don't do these things with imperfect duties um, you've got more of latitude about how you fulfill them And often you've got examples here, such as help other people. It's the example I just just gave. Be honest with people. Um, uh, Treat them well. Uh, Nurture their talents and nurture your talents. And it's up to you. You have to fulfill these duties, but it's up to you exactly how you fulfill them uh, and when you fulfill them. Um, Specifically, when you act upon them. Um, And so there's a bit more latitude there. They're imperfect uh, in in the sense that uh, they're not as highly specified, uh, certainly not in the way that perfect duties are highly specified. And that brings us on to the second formulation of the categorical imperative. which I'll read out, act in such a way that you always treat humanity in your own person or in any other, never simply as a means, but always at the same time as an end in itself. And again, we talk a lot about this in the in-depth discussion. Um, A few things to to mention there. So you're always treating humanity, your own person and that of any other. It's very important to realize for Kant that um, moral philosophy is often, we're thinking about how we act towards other people, but for Kant, it's just as important to be thinking about your duties towards yourself, how you act towards yourself. He's very keen on us helping to support and encourage talents in other people, but also nurturing our own talents as well. And that's an imperfect duty or two sets of imperfect duties that we that we have. Then there's that phrase at the end, never simply as a means, but at the same time as an end in themselves. So you can treat people as means. That's perfectly fine. When I go to the shop, I'm treating the shopkeeper as a means to getting the product I'm buying because they're running a shop. But I never treat them only as a means. In fact, I never treat anyone for Kant always only as a means. I'm always treating them as an end in themselves. They're always someone who is a rational agent who has their own ends and their own goals, their own will. And I need to be acting in relation to them such that I'm respecting their humanity and respecting them as a will, or as Kant puts it, as an end in themselves. So that goes, it takes us back to the two shopkeepers example. Um, Remember there was that shopkeeper who was acting in accordance with duty. If he could, he'd get away with it and he'd lie to his customers. That's not treating them as an end in themselves. That's treating them as a means, a means for, for how he can make more profit out of his shop. you're acting in accordance with duty then what you're doing is you're treating um, people as ends in themselves you are respecting their humanity respecting that they are willing beings rational willing beings who have their own choices and their own freedoms and there's more going on there in in that second formulation but I think I'll leave that there there's also some debates amongst uh, philosophers about whether Kant is right to think he does think that those two formulations of the categorical imperative that I've given are equivalent. Kant thinks they are, some people think they aren't. We mentioned that a little bit in the in-depth interview. Okay, so those are kind of the main moving parts of Kant's moral philosophy. It's been a bit breathless and a bit quick. I hope it gives you a good spread of what's going on. Let me just briefly mention um, a few problems that there are with Kant's Moral philosophy is deontology. We again we talk about them more in detail in the discussion um, towards the end in the final 20 minutes or so. So things to look out for are clashes between duties and clashes between principles. How does Kant resolve those? Sometimes deontology, and in particular Kant's deontology, may lead to extreme acts that seem intuitively wrong so here we discuss that classic famous example um, for Kant of the mad axe murderer at the door who knocks on the door and asks have you seen um, a particular person who happens to be a friend of yours and they're hiding around the back do you protect the friend and in doing so lie to the mad axe murderer and say oh you haven't seen your friend who knows where they are, and send the Mad Axe murderer on their way? Or do you uh, tell the truth to a clear question the Mad Axe murderer has asked you, in which case you might be giving your friend away and not protecting them? And Kant um, talks about that, and it's always a classic and good example to think through when you're thinking about cancer moral philosophy. We talk about that example and the general concern. We also think about um, problems um, about strange maxims. Remember early on I said, do not steal from someone uh, unless it's on a Wednesday and they're wearing a blue jumper. How do we think about those sorts of principles and maxims, those highly specific, perhaps silly, maxims which have all these clauses added on how does Kant deal with that how should a Kantian deal with with those sorts of examples and there's also one last big um, uh, topic we talk about all the way through Kant stresses about acting out of duty and that should be your main um, motivation you could be motivated in other ways you can be motivated out of love out of uh, friendship for example but the moral motivation is the, is the motivation where you act out of duty. But of course, as we know in our everyday lives, sometimes we do act out of love and out of friendship and out of all sorts of motives. And sometimes those are better uh, moral motives or ethical motives than acting out of duty. Sometimes acting out of duty explicitly doesn't seem to be quite the right motivation, quite the right ethical motivation. We think about some examples regarding that and think about how Kant or a Kantian might cope with all of those. But that's all in the final part of that in-depth discussion in the final 20 minutes. OK, so in this short episode, I don't know how short it is in the end. Uh, we've been thinking about normative ethics and deontology very briefly. Then we've gone through all of the main moving parts in Kant's moral philosophy, such as the goodwill, the categorical imperative, contradiction, conception and contradiction in tests. And then we have thought, or at least I've introduced anyway, some of the main problems for Kantian deontology. So as I say, there's an in-depth discussion uh, with me, Michael and Ben, where we talk through all of these at length in detail. Um, so have a listen to that one. But this is the uh, short episode, which I hope has given you a good introduction and a good summary of what's going on in deontology and Kant.